You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Welcome to this week's edition of the GDPR Weekly Show. And as regular listeners will know, I'd like to start with a shout out to our new listeners. And this week we have new listeners in London, Birmingham, Sheffield, Nottingham, Portsmouth, Manchester, Swansea, Liverpool, Leeds, Cardiff, Southampton, Derby, Eastleigh, Guildford and Coventry. And then we also have new listeners in Dublin in Ireland, in Calais in France, in Barcelona in Spain, Lisbon in Portugal, Brussels in Belgium, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, The Hague, Groningen and Gelderland, all in the Netherlands, Frankfurt, Berlin and Bavaria in Germany, Copenhagen, Hoverstaden, Midland, Schelland, Sidemark, all in Denmark, Prague in the Czech Republic, Vienna in Austria, Valais in Switzerland, Turin in Italy, Budapest in Hungary, Zagreb in Croatia, Serbia, Istanbul and Ankara in Turkey, Stockholm in Sweden, a new group of listeners in southern Finland, in Iceland, in Moscow in Russia, Tel Aviv in Israel, Kampala in Uganda, Karnataka in India, Beijing in China, Tokyo in Japan, Seoul in South Korea, Adelaide in Australia, Sao Paulo and Brasilia in Brazil, Quebec and British Columbia in Canada, and then in the US this week, we have new listeners in San Francisco, in Houston, in Pittsburgh, in Austin, Washington DC, Birmingham, Dallas, New York, Providence, Rhode Island, Omaha, Boston, Los Angeles, Battle Creek, St. Louis, Baltimore, Santa Barbara, Cincinnati, High Point, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Winston-Salem. So, once again, really great to see new listeners from every corner of the world, and I really appreciate you listening, and it was a big shout-out too to all my regular listeners who listen every week. I really do appreciate you taking 30 minutes or so out of your week to catch up on the latest news in the world of GDPR. I hope you find the programme useful and informative and entertaining. And as always, if you have any feedback, please send it to me by email at podcasts at insurety.co.uk. That's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y dot co.uk. Podcasts at insurety.co.uk. Any feedback. Um, I do read all the messages that I receive and it's particularly useful to receive messages that I do from some of you with ideas for things you'd like covered in future editions of the GDPR Weekly Show. Or indeed, people you'd like to see interviewed in the GDPR Weekly Show, and we will bring you the first of those interviews in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. So, in a few moments, I'll be telling you what's coming up in this week's episode. Check us out on Facebook. So, coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have a look at how to verify a data subject's identity before you release data requested in a data subject access request. We have an article on the questions which the ICO in Sweden has raised in their investigation of Spotify. 
We have news about the importance of data retention periods, particularly since this is now starting to be picked up by various ICOs. And we look at a particular case where the ICO in Denmark has fined a furniture company in Denmark for not complying with their data retention period. And then quite a major article on the ICO's report into programmatic advertising and their views on both Google and the IAB, the Internet Advertising Bureau's proposed codes of conduct for programmatic advertising. And it's an interesting listen, so please do listen to that article. We then have a short article on TripAdvisor. TripAdvisor have tightened their password security, and as a result, lots of users logging into TripAdvisor will now find that they can't log in. And so we have a little note on what to do about that. And then finally for this week, we have a small story on the fact that, just to show that we can all fall foul with GDPR from time to time, um, the ISO themselves in the UK have found that they have fallen foul with GDPR because they have discovered that their own cookie policy is not GDPR compliant. So a uh, final note there for this week's episode. So as usual, a wide range of articles in this week's episode of GDPR Weekly Show. And I really hope you enjoy the show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. A number of listeners have asked us about um, how, when someone makes a data subject access request, do you verify that the person making the data subject access request is actually the data subject or someone acting as a proxy for the data subject with the data subject's full authority? Well, let's talk about the first one first, but how do you tell whether someone is generally the data subject? There's various ways you can do this. One is by having a form which is only accessible via an existing login system, so the person would have to have a username and password into your website or other system, and then be able to submit their request for their details via a form to be found there. Obviously, that would probably pretty well guarantee that the person making the application was the data subject or at the very least someone authorised by the data subject. Or you might look at using some form of two-factor authentication. Now that might be in the form of a code that you send by SMS to the user's registered mobile phone. It might be by making use of a third-party application, something like Authy, A-U-T-H-Y, for those of you who may not have heard of Authy. It might be that you ask them to confirm their request. If the request has been made by telephone, perhaps you ask them to confirm it by sending you an email and explain to them that the email address that's used must match the email address that you hold on file for them. If you have an account number with them, then perhaps you can ask them for the last three digits of the account number and the customer's date of birth and or the customer's number for verification. Or you can ask someone to come and buy and show you their ID proof without making a copy. So, you you might say to someone, well, bring your driving license or your passport into our reception and prove you are who you say you are and we'll release the information to you. Or you might ask them to make a copy and send that to you remotely. That's fine too. But 
important thing to remember is that with all these things, the 30 days to provide the information starts from when the day the subject makes the request, not from when they've confirmed who they are. So that's why it's very important that you have systems in place that record when the data subject access request has been made so that you can satisfy both the data subject and the relevant ICO that you have supplied the information within the required 30 days. And unfortunately that holds true even if it's day 29 before someone sends their ID to you. So it's important that once you get that request for data subject data from a data subject that you put the wheels in motion to release that data ready for them. Now the other thing that this raises is the issue of people acting as a proxy on behalf of the data subject. That might be either a legal firm, might be an individual, might be a volunteer, might be anyone is acting on someone's behalf. That's fine, that's perfectly legitimate, but they do need to provide you with a signed document from the applicant, from the data subject, so you can confirm who the data subject is, and it has to make clear what they're giving permission to the person for, and for how long. And without that, you can refuse to release the information to a proxy. But if a proxy provides that information, then you must release the information within the 30 days, just as you would to the data subject themselves. I hope that makes sense. I hope that gives some ideas of how you can verify a data subject is genuine. Um, if any of you have any, any feedback or any other ideas that you use, um, I'd be delighted to hear them. So please drop me an email to podcast at insurety.co.uk. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you listened to last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, you will know that the Swedish ICO is currently uh, carrying out an investigation of Spotify to see whether Spotify is actually releasing to data subjects all the data which Spotify holds about those subjects and the Swedish ICO has been kind enough to provide us with a copy of the questions which they have sent to Spotify and I've now had an opportunity to have them translated into English and I thought it was worth sharing them with you so you can see the sort of things that the Swedish ICO is asking for and probably therefore what other ICOs across Europe are going to ask for if they do carry out an investigation into your data. So in this case, the Swedish ICO has chosen to examine how Spotify handles the request for access in three different parts. And they've broken that down into what information is provided, what the copy of the personal data provided to the data subject actually includes, and how the information is designed, i.e. Is there proof that Spotify are only capturing information that they can justifiably say that they need? And also how is that presented back to the data subject when the data subject access request is fulfilled? So if we take the first part of that, and the, the first questions here, questions one and two from the Swedish ICO refer to articles 15.1 and 15.2 of the GDPR regulations. And the questions specifically are, one, how do you ensure that the data subject, upon request for access, gets a share of the information to be provided under Article 15, uh, Section 1, Paragraphs A to H, and Article 15, Paragraph 2? 
Briefly describe your routines and considerations and answer the following questions below. And the questions that the Swedish ICO is asking in relation to Articles 15.1 and 15.2 are A. What information is provided regarding each item? B. How is the information provided? I. How is this information provided uh, to the data subject? And is that through information on the web? in a copy of the personal data being sent according to Article 15.3 or in another way. And then C, if the information is only provided on the web, how do you see that the data subject receives part of this information in connection with their request? I.e., is the information provided in an information box, in a pop-up window, in a link or some other way? So what this is saying here is that Article 15.3 allows for um, data to be provided in a way which the users can see. So if you have users log on to your system and they can see via that logon all of the data that you hold about them anyway, then there is justification here, it implies, that you could say, well, actually, if you make a data subject access request, we don't need to provide anything to you additionally because you can access all the information that we hold about you via our web interface. So if that's true, if you're satisfied that all the data you hold can be accessed via the web, then this now, I think, provides enough weight to say that's the way we will provide the information. So you just say to someone, hey, you know what, you have a username and password, you can log on to our system, all the data you've provided us with is there on the system, we don't hold any other data about you rather other than that, you can see, job done. But the, um, Swedish ICO then went on to go a bit further. Specifically in question two, they asked Spotify to anonymize some data and send them sample data that would have been provided as if they were data subjects under Articles 15.1 and 15.2 of the GDPR. And they then move on to Article 15.3 of the GDPR, which is a copy of personal data which is being processed. And under this, the Swedish ICOs asked some specific questions, which are, how do you ensure that the data subject, upon request for access, receives a copy of all of the personal data, my emphasis, but all of the personal data that you deal with regarding them? Briefly describe your routines and considerations and answer the questions below. And the questions they asked are A. Do you hand out all the personal data that you process regarding the registered person? Or are certain categories of personal information excluded from the copy of personal data that you release to the data subject? And then B. If certain categories of personal data are excluded, what support do you have for those exemptions and what considerations have you done regarding the respective category of personal data? And that's really saying, have you carried out a data privacy impact analysis on that data as to why it should be excluded, why it shouldn't be released to the data subject? And the ICO is in fact saying if you have that, then you, they need to see the outcome of that DPIA. And then C, if you analyse data on user behaviour in the service through profiling, and they've taken an example here which might apply to Spotify, so i.e. does the user data indicate which songs the user has selected, uh, which ones they've interrupted during playback, have they changed them manually, or have they just listened to automatic playlists or similar, and again then how does this data appear within the copy of the personal data provided to the data subject, and is there a 
explanation given of that data to the data subject so the data they're provided with actually make sense. And again, the ICO has asked Spotify to provide samples of that data, again anonymised but with the sufficient data they can see what would be issued to a data subject. And they then move on to Article 12 which is the design of the information and they ask one question about that which is what measures have you taken to ensure that all the information provided, i.e. both the drawing draft rule 15.1 and 15.2 and the drawing draft rule 15.3 are given in a concise, clear, understandable and easily accessible form using clear language. Briefly describe your actions and considerations and answer the following questions A to C below. And questions A to C are A. Do you share the information provided in any way with a third party? And if so, how do you share the information? B. Are you leaving out encrypted personal data? And if so, which categories of personal data have you chosen to be encrypted? And if you leave encrypted data and you're sharing the data with a third party, do you share a translation key or some other way that the third party can access the information? And then C, in what formats is the information normally provided to third parties? And so it's quite interesting that those are the questions which the Swedish ICO is asking of Spotify. Spotify have until July the 1st to provide the Swedish ICO with answers to those questions. But perhaps more broadly, they sound a warning bell to everyone if you like that if we ourselves or you or any of our clients or any or any other organization are subject to a ICO investigation then perhaps this gives some clear pointers as to the sort of questions that the ICO is going to ask and it's perhaps worth you re-listening to this section of the podcast and just thinking do you know what if that was asked of our company or our organization right now how would we answer those questions? Would we be able to answer those questions? Would we be able to answer the questions fairly quickly? Once we've heard back from the Swedish ICO that they've had a response from Spotify, we will, of course, bring that to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Check us out on Facebook. We are getting an increasing number of our customers now already contacting us to arrange an audit, as now it's coming up to towards a year from when GDPR came in and they want to make sure that they're operating as they should be and we'd like to offer this service out to all of you, all of our listeners. Uh, So if you'd like us to perform an audit on your GDPR uh, operations and make sure that you are recording everything you need to be, that you have all the necessary procedures in place and that you know how to action those procedures please do get in touch with us via podcasts at insurity.co.uk. That's podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at insurity, E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y dot co.uk. Please make the subject of your email GDPR audit, and we'll get the relevant person to contact you. Um, we're able to carry out audits either on-site or remotely, and for a pleasantly low cost. Um, I'm sure you'll be pleasantly surprised with the figure we're able to provide you with for providing the audit. I can't give a global figure here because it does affect, it does depend on how many employees, how many customers, how many records, etc. you have. Um, But please do get in contact with us. It's totally without obligation, but do get in contact with us to arrange an audit. 
because uh, if you do want the audit done around May or June of this year to be annual from when GDPR came in we are roughly filling our diaries for that period so uh, don't delay do get in touch do it this week and we'll be pleased to provide you with a quote and for the first five of you to contact us to request a, a data audit a data breach audit i'm pleased to be able to say that we will provide that to you for 50 percent of our normal fee but that's only for the first five of you to contact us as a result of this podcast you're listening to the gdpr weekly show with your host keith budden While understandably with GDPR, a great deal of time and attention is spent on data breaches and on uh, data subject access requests, one item which can often be forgotten is data retention and the fact that GDPR does require you to, for each item of data that you hold, give that item of data a data life. And more importantly, also, is making sure that you have procedures in place to ensure that if you say that you only keep data for two and a half years, then that's all you do keep data for. And for a Danish furniture company, uh, ID Design, that policy has come to bite them because the uh, Danish ICO carried out a random inspection of ID design and found that actually information of approximately 385,000 customers was being held for longer than the company said it retained data in its data retention schedule. As a result, the company has been fined 1.5 million Danish krona, or that's equivalent to almost 180,000 pounds sterling. So perhaps a useful reminder that retention periods are important. If we look a little deeper into this case as to what they actually discovered, uh, they discovered that really the problem had come about because the company, ID Design, had changed their CRM system, their Customer Relationship Management System, and these records were held on their old CRM. So while they did have a batch process in place on their new CRM, which deleted things according to their data retention schedule, they didn't delete the data from the old CRM and in fact when the uh, uh, Danish ICO went to investigate this company they found actually had seven different CRM systems in use uh, across the company and so as a result it meant that whilst there were good procedures in place on the current CRM there was a lot of redundant customer data still being held. And the point was raised by the Danish ICO that this was contrary to uh, some of the regulations in fact, Article 5, Paragraph 3 
of the data protection regulations and some of it indeed in relation to article 5 paragraph 2 in which it said that the data controller was not able to demonstrate that it had been possible to identify the data subjects for a longer period than is necessary for the purposes for which the personal data in question is processed. And so it does go to show the importance of A, setting data retention schedules for the data that you hold, and B, and this is something which we emphasise in our training and, and all of my own clients will be aware of, the need to make sure that you have procedures in place that says if I only keep data for 12 months or only keep data for two years then you make sure that you only hold that data. Um, the example that they gave here was that while the company said it only kept data for two and a half years they actually found data going back as far as the 21st of March 2015 which is clearly much further back than two and a half years from today um, and so it was the ICO's opinion that ID Design had not complied with the deadlines for deletion of personal data of companies of customers that the company itself had established and in doing so was not compliant with the requirements of article 5 paragraph 1 of the data protection regulations The other interesting thing was that the ICO also asked to see documentation for the follow-up procedures for deletion, i.e. how was the company verifying that data which should have been deleted had been deleted and the company wasn't able to provide suitable documentary proof. And so I think there's two lessons for us all to take from this which is A make sure you have a data retention policy and B make sure that policy is clearly documented and most importantly that there are actually procedures in place to make sure that data is deleted in accordance with that data retention policy because if you've said you only need data for two years you have absolutely no excuse for retaining data for longer than two years. Now for in the UK for a lot of financial data or for payroll data there is a statutory requirement to keep that information for six years and indeed it's good practice to keep it for seven but any longer than that it's really almost impossible to justify and so do make sure that you do have data retention policies in place if you need any help with drawing up your data retention policies or you're not sure whether your data retention policies are fit for purpose then please do get in touch with us via podcast at insurety.co.uk e-n-s-u-r-e-t-y.co.uk and we'll be very pleased to help you. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you will know that several times we've mentioned about the UK Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, investigating programmatic advertising and in particular the rule set devised by the Internet Advertising Bureau, the IAB, for the use of programmatic advertising. And on Thursday this week, the ICO finally issued its long-awaited report and its verdict on the actions that have been taken in the UK so far on 
real-time bidding for programmatic advertising. In a nutshell, not good enough. The ICO says that they've allowed ample time for business to show how they've adapted business processes in order to comply properly with GDPR, which was introduced last May. But bar a small contingent of publishers and ad tech vendors, the majority continue to flout the law rather than risk any drop in advertising revenue, which complying more strictly would cause. The report has been circulated in the ad tech sector and will be released publicly by the ICO. And the ICO has said that it will check that its stipulations have been followed in six months' time. It may then decide to write further guidance. It's noteworthy that the Irish ICO are also investigating many of the same issues that the UK ICO has covered in their report. Although the ICO at the present moment hasn't made any serious threats to businesses that don't comply, it's quite clearly indicated, hinted if you like, that things are going to change. Indeed, Elizabeth Denham, the Information Commissioner, said we are clear about the areas where we have initial concerns and we expect to see change. So what do they expect to see change? Well, the first thing I think is that as far as programmatic advertising is concerned, they've made clear that legitimate interest is no longer a valid reason for retaining data. I think it's fair to say that all those involved in the internet space have long felt that for claiming that for advertisers legitimate interest was the reason for holding data was a sticky wicket but it seems now we've been supported in that because the ICO are now saying it's not good enough. The ICO in their report made it abundantly clear that claiming legitimate interest as a compliance strategy is impossible if a business is using real-time bidding for its advertising. It cannot be used for bid request processing. The only option is for these businesses to obtain consumer consent. Now let's think about that. That's quite a big implication. That's saying that for real-time advertising, and by what I mean by the way with this real-time advertising is, you know the sort of adverts that follow you around? You go on the website, you look at, I don't know, let's say a garden shed, and then for the next 48 hours every website you go to seems to have adverts advertising garden sheds and that's because the cookie on your pc and tied that into the programmatic advertising algorithms that said hey this guy or this lady is interested in garden sheds so let's bombard them with adverts for garden sheds at every single opportunity because who knows sooner or later they might buy a shed um because it can be that the frequency of those ads gets so annoying that actually all you want to do is go and burn down a shed. Not that I'm advocating the arson for one moment, but I think you get the idea. Um, and this is why it's been brought to the ICO's attention. But the ICO is also concerned about the fact that some programmatic advertising is making use of sensitive data, special category data, such as ethnic origin, health, background, religion, political or sexual orientation. As you should know, if you're involved at all with GDPR, is that processing this kind of data always requires an extra layer of protection, as GDPR specifies that you risk harming the individuals if it's misused. The ICO has now stated that any processing of this kind of data is unlawful without explicit consent. And again, that has 
imputations, I think, because that means that if you do hold any of this information, not just for programmatic advertising, but for any reason within your systems, then you need explicit consent. You can no longer rely just on um, legal basis of, you know, uh, legitimate interest or even just consent, implied consent. You must have specific consent if you're processing special category data. And it's flagged up the ICO in the report that it's witnessed this GDPR stipulation being flouted by companies which actually use this sensitive data within bid requests along with other information like device IDs, cookie IDs and uh, information on your current location. Now the IAB Europe and Google have been trying to put together a framework which they hoped would satisfy the ICO but that hasn't happened. The ICOs examined the framework and Google's own version, which they've returned to as the authorised buyers network, because it's not yet quite synced with the IAB version. The ICO has made it clear that in several fundamental areas, the IAB's proposed solution isn't going to work. The simplest is that despite the publicity the IAB have brought to their framework, and I can remember going to seminars about their framework well over 12 months ago. So far only 450 companies have signed up to use the framework. Now 450 companies is quite a lot but out of the overall you know UK total advertising space 450 uh, companies is really a drop in the ocean. And as such consumers are unlikely to understand what the IAB framework is and therefore what extent their data is used and by who. And the ICO have actually said that the framework is insufficient to ensure transparency and fair processing of the personal data in question, and therefore is also insufficient to provide free and informed consent. So what about contracts? Well, the ICO has been quite damning on that too. The ICO is saying that contractual agreements are worthless in the digital ad trading ecosystem, any data used to buy ads on the open exchange is vulnerable to leakage. If an agency or publisher agrees to a contract with a demand side platform, or indeed a supply side platform, how are they going to have any way of ensuring that the vendor won't knowingly or indeed unknowingly leak that data to countless other third parties in the process of ad impressions being bought and executed? That's why a large number of publishers, agencies, advertisers, and vendors have tended to rely on contracts to attempt to cover their backs, but these contracts declare the onus for any data privacy breach to fall directly on the shoulders of the company processing the data on the other half. However, the ICO said that these contracts are void because, if any of you remember back to your GDPR training, and hopefully you've all had GDPR training, if not, please get in touch with us at podcast.insurity.co.uk and we'd love to arrange some training for you. But one of the key elements there is that you can't have sloping shoulders as far as responsibility for data privacy breaches is concerned. If you're a data controller or a data processor and you have a data breach, you have a duty back to that data subject whose data has been breached. Data controllers must triple check how their data processors and their partners share data. Now the ICO has also reached out to small publishers though, although it doesn't define what it means by a small publisher, but it has said that it recognises that the non-compliant use of real-time bidding, many smaller publishers are reliant on 
this form of advertising for their survival. And they recognise that. But, nonetheless, the ICO are saying that they now have six months to get your house in order. And what's also now happened is that the ICO have indicated to us that within the next week to 10 days, they'll be issuing detailed guidance on the use of cookies under GDPR. And it'd be interesting to see how that ties in with the use of cookies under the privacy directive. Uh, And as soon as we've had sight of that document from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in a future edition of the GDPR Weekly Show. If things go according to plan and the ICO issue the information on time, I would suspect we'll be bringing that to you in an episode of the GDPR Weekly Show in two weeks' time, but that might slip. So please do listen to the next few episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show, and as soon as we have that information on the ISO's guidance in the use of cookies and GDPR, we will, of course, bring it to you via the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you use TripAdvisor and you go to log in and find that your password doesn't work anymore, it will be because TripAdvisor have reset it. Uh, what's actually happened is that TripAdvisor have gained access to a number of records which have been hacked from other sources. And what they're saying is they're calling them lists of publicly leaked passwords. And if the password you've chosen is on the list of publicly leaked passwords, then TripAdvisor will have changed your password, which will mean that when you go to log into TripAdvisor, you'll have to reset your password to whatever you want it to be, but it won't be allowed to be any of the ones that are on the list. Um, TripAdvisor are doing this to improve their data security, and we're aware that several people have received email from TripAdvisor and were worried that it was a phishing attack but it's not a phishing attack it is genuine it's really come from uh, TripAdvisor and if you want to uh, log in to TripAdvisor having found that they've changed your password then you just simply need to go to https colon slash slash www.tripadvisor.com forward slash member forgot password and it's member forgot password all word with a capital M for member a capital F for forgot and a capital P for password and then you can reset your password and what they're saying is that passwords now will need to be a unique combination of number symbols and both upper and lowercase letters a minimum of eight characters long and not containing any commonly used words and so they're going to make it much tougher on the passwords which they will allow TripAdvisor people to use so if you receive an email from TripAdvisor that begins dear TripAdvisor traveler as part of our ongoing efforts to protect your security TripAdvisor recently compared our member databases with lists of publicly leaked passwords. Unfortunately, your email and password were included on a list of leaked passwords. As a result, to protect your TripAdvisor account, we have invalidated your password. Then, this is a genuine email from TripAdvisor. 
and you should follow the steps that it says within the email to enable you to reset your TripAdvisor password and continue your use of TripAdvisor. I think it's quite good of TripAdvisor to be proactive in promoting good security. So if you are a TripAdvisor user and you receive that email, please do follow the instructions. Check us out on Facebook. And finally this week, and proving perhaps that uh, GDPR can catch anyone out, the ICO has been forced to admit that it has a breach of GDPR on its own website and that its cookie policy is not compliant with uh, the UK Data Protection Act 2018. The regulator has said that they are waiting for an ups- a website upgrade which should be activated next week and after that the policy will be fully compliant. Um, they reported themselves to themselves, so the ICO reported themselves to the ICO when they noticed that the current consent notice relating to the use of cookies on devices failed to meet the required GDPR standard. They point out that the issue was only relevant to cookies on a user's mobile device when accessing the ICO's website, which would have been in breach of the Privacy and Electronic Communication Regulation, PECA, which sits alongside GDPR. Article 6 of PECA prohibits the storage of or access to information held on a user's device unless explicit consent is given. The argument being that because cookies were used automatically, users weren't asked to give their consent. In an email which we've seen from the ICO, the ICO said that they acknowledge the current cookies consent notice on their website does not meet the required GDPR standard. We are currently in the process of updating this and aligning to our, our use of cookies to the GDPR standard of consent and we will be making amendments to this information during the week commencing 24th of June. So I think it just goes to show that really even the ICO can fall foul of GDPR so don't worry too much if you have a minor breach of GDPR yourself. Not that I'm anyway um, condoning breaches of GDPR of course and please do everything you can to make sure that you stay compliant and if you have any doubts about compliance, then compliance, then please do get in touch with us at podcast@insurity.co.uk, and we would love to help you. And that's even if you are the ICO. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. Check us out on Facebook. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.